Well, many people often wonder why I am not more into sports. Any of you who are tall, you feel my pain. I always feel bad for those guys who are tall and they get asked if they played basketball, but they never did. What do you say? I always feel bad for those guys. But I played collegiate sports and I had a very brief stint in uh, professional basketball. And the look of shock I get when people ask me, you know, hey, did you see the game? Did you? And I say no. It's always like, wow, how could you? Right? It's almost as if I've broken the moral code. One of the things I've found and that I love about sports, even though I'm not necessarily participating in them that much anymore except with my kiddos, is that I love the metaphors that come from sports. Even Paul. Paul was a guy who uh, church tradition tells us was short, was pretty unhealthy, uh, was probably not the guy that you'd see out there, you know, quarterbacking the Green Bay Packers, right? And yet he used sports metaphors because they fit so well with what it is to walk in this life. And one of the truths that sports brings to bear in a huge way is the necessity of teamwork, which I love. And it does not matter the sport, but time and time again, you see this throughout sports. So what are your favorite sports? Yell out a sport. Curling. Hey, that's actually a great one. Man, talk about teamwork there, right? Even like Indy 500, Indy racing, right? I mean, you still have to have the pit crew. There's there's a, a piece of teamwork. Um, even figure skating, let's say. And some of you are like, figure skating isn't a sport. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Those athletes, they need to work with their coaches. Teamwork is important. Many times we see in football or basketball or soccer that there's a really great player, but we realize that without that great player, they don't do well. My sport is basketball, and so you can look at players like Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and when they're not with a team, it doesn't matter if they can score 100 points, they probably will not win a championship. But with a team, they experience victory. These men, all of whom only truly became victors when surrounded by capable teams, learned that even though they had this amazing power, they, they needed somebody around them. Now what's interesting with this metaphor, this idea of teamwork, is that you see this in Scripture as well. That God is ultimately more powerful than any of us can imagine. So don't hear me as saying he can't win the victory by himself. Uh, but yet, what Scripture tells us is that he uses us. He uses humans. And if you read the Word, he uses very fallible humans. I've always thought it's funny that when we read this, we talk about the heroes of the Bible. You ever, you ever notice that? None of the people in here other than Jesus are heroic. You ever notice that? In fact, they're so not heroic that they're just like me. And that's why it's very practical for me to be able to read it. Now where the metaphor starts to break down is that God is powerful enough at any point in time that he could destroy all of his enemies, he could reign in victory and place himself above all creation, no problem. Do we all agree with that? That he's that sovereign, he's that powerful. But the reality is, is that that's not what he does. He shows that a little bit here and there in Scripture where he has angels come and wipe out hundreds of thousands of, of warriors. But as Scripture unveils God's plan, what we see more and more is that the God of the Bible who is one who desires to work through incarnate means. He desires to work through people. He desires to work through the physical nature of the world he's created. And in so doing, his victory and power is almost greater when he works through the people that bear his name. You see, it shows a really great power to be able to take a bunch of screw-ups like us, like the people in this Bible, and yet use them to reign in victory. What an amazing God that can accomplish His purposes through such flawed creatures as us. Really, all you have to do is look no further than the pastor standing before you and realize 
wow, God can do amazing things, right? What we're going to see this morning in, in the first chapter or first part of chapter nine of Deuteronomy is a similar truth. Without the power that God has given us, without his righteousness, we are dead. We are without hope in a lost and dying world. We're doomed to the stiff-necked rebellion that we have and the destruction that follows. But we're also going to see that God's plan guarantees victory. And for that to occur, he asks us to partner with him in the process that brings that victory about. And this balanced view of virtue and victory is what I want to teach us this morning. Because I think in doing so, it will allow us to avoid some of the pitfalls that I see in evangelicalism. I think that often we can confuse his virtue, our virtue, his victory, our victory, and we can become very unbalanced in the way we view our Christianity. And so this morning, I want to walk you through what I see in Scripture as a balanced view of his virtue and our, meaning his and ours, collective victory. Remember that we are still here in Deuteronomy 9 in the surrounding section of Moses standing on the east side of the Jordan, speaking motivationally to his troops, to the people of Israel. And remember, these weren't all warriors. These were people that were everyday people. Can you imagine the person who had just, they'd grown up a slave, right? And then they came through the wilderness and they had kids, and those kids are the ones that are entering into the promised land. These people don't have warrior skills, they haven't been trained, and yet they're about to go up against this massive army of Canaanites, all of whom are giant and scary. And yet, what's happening here is Moses is saying, guys, you're going to have victory. And he's going to take them through, starting in verse or in chapter 11 and 12, he's going to take them through the law of God to tell them who they are. And so right now, we're in this section of summarizing that law of God before he goes into the detail. Because Moses knows that after having walked with these people and leading them for 40 years, leading them through the wilderness, he knows that if they're not careful and if they don't pay attention, they will quickly and surely fall prey to some pitfalls that we find ourselves in as well as 2019 Christians. Now, he's already warned them in chapter 7 about the potential pitfalls of nationalism, which for them also encompasses racism, in which he said, hey guys, don't believe you're better than other nations because you're the chosen ones, because you're quote-unquote God's people. He warns them against having a nationalistic mentality where they lift themselves up above every other nation. Now, this is fair warning to us as Americans as well, is it not? That we must heed this warning because we're apt in our ability to consider ourselves a quote-unquote Christian nation, even though often the outcome and the output of our nation is something else totally different. And last week in chapter 8, he warned them about confusing God's gracious provision of economic success with their own ability to provide for themselves. Remember, he said, don't think because you're provided for that all of a sudden you're the one that provided it. Another fair warning for us as Americans that we need to heed, believing that whatever we do is virtuous because, well, we're rich and we are well provided for. And so we need to heed that warning as well. But this week, Moses will warn them of one more pitfall, which is believing that victory, victory over God's enemies comes because of their effort and their virtue. And this is where I believe we can see the pitfalls that if we're not careful, we will fall into believing if we are not, um, not paying attention as evangelicals today. And the two pitfalls that I'm going to show you today that we're going to talk about is this. The first one is this. If there is victory, it was all God. Now in a second, you're going to, you're going to say, wait a minute, Hans, that's, that's true. The victory is all God's true. 
But I'm going to help you balance that view out because a second thing that we can be prone to is if there is victory, it was all me. And what we'll see today is a balance in between the two, that all victory, all righteousness originates with God, but that he also asks us to partner with him to bring about the fullness of victory. And you'll see what I mean as we go through today. So these are the two pitfalls that we need to be careful of. Now, honestly, I think slowly but surely, we have gotten out of the second one there. If there is a victory, it was all me. I see that less and less as a pastor. I see less and less people trying to, quote-unquote, earn their salvation. I see more and more as I pastor people who said a prayer one time, go about their business, wait for the rapture, and, you know, it's all God. I don't have to do anything. And guys, that is just as much of a pitfall as the other one. Both come from false gospel. And I'll show you what I mean. So I hope to show you today that both of these will lead us into a false theology that has negative results in our walk. So now that we have a good context, let's read through the first part of our text today, just the first three verses there in Deuteronomy 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall. I don't know what the Bible has against tall people. The sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Now therefore today that he who go, know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Well, the very first thing that we see here this morning that you can write down if you're taking notes is this. It is God's plan for his people to be victorious. It is God's plan for his people to be victorious. And you might say, well, duh, Hans, that, of course, that's what the Bible says. But guys, this is not just victory in terms of salvation and being one with the Lord and reconciled to him and being with him in eternity. This is also victory in everyday life. Conquering the kingdom of darkness as it sits within your own heart, as it sits within your own mind, as it sits within your relationship, as it sits in the middle of your uh, place of work where the kingdom of darkness is the ethos that's happening around you. Victory comes in the midst of everyday life and the Lord wants to give us that victory. It is God's plan for his people to be victorious. We see this clearly in the midst of this immediate context here in chapter 9. You don't see him have a caveat where he says, hey, you're going to go in, but by the way, it's going to really stink and you'll get destroyed. No, he says you're going in to dispossess. It's a foregone conclusion. Israel was going to be victorious over the Canaanites. They were going to conquer and subdue the land and dispossess the people. Now, if you're a person who this is your first time hearing, you're thinking, man, that sounds like a terrible, wrathful, vengeful God. Go back and listen to some of the previous teachings I've done on why they were doing that and why that was within God's holiness. But now we can quickly move past this point and miss that the author, most likely Moses, is trying to remind us of something. And so we need to look at verses 1 and 2. And we notice some wording that sounds very, very familiar there when he's talking about these great and fortified cities, these tall Anakim. Okay, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, just a couple of pages to the left there. Deuteronomy 1, and take a look at verse 27. When Moses was recounting to the Israelites the story of their parents who had uh, lost the chance to go into the promised land and had been sent out to wander in the wilderness, notice what they were complaining about. In verse 27 there, it says, And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt 
to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God, He goes before you. Uh, who goes before you will Himself fight for you, just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek, you out, seek out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Here he uses the exact same language in chapter 9 in order to say, hey guys, you are in a sense stronger than your parents. You have been given faith. You have been given power. Go in and dispossess them. And as we will see uh, when we teach through Joshua, to a great extent, they did this. They went in, partnered with God, and dispossessed the nation. So Moses here in chapter 9 is reminding the people that the foes they're about to face were no different than what their parents were going to face. The Anakim had not gotten weaker in one generation, but were still the same difficult opponents. They had fortified cities that seemed like they stretched to heaven, and they were still giants in the eyes of the Israelites. But in spite of that, they knew that God would still lead them in victory. He guaranteed it for them. And their simple response that was asked for was to obey the command to partner with God to accomplish that. It's a simple response. Difficult, but simple. We see this immediate context spread to the rest of Scripture. As we look through the narrative of the Bible, we see that God's plan for His people is to be victorious and conquer the nations in the name of His Son. Our reading from the beginning of our gathering from Psalm 22-28 said this in it, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. He rules presently over the nations. The nations can roar and rage. The leaders can roar and rage. But the Lord is the one that rules over them. And this is where we get the idea in Matthew 28-18 when Jesus says, All authority has been given to Me from heaven and earth, on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Why? Because He is over the nation. He's gained victory. And now it's the job of the people, His people, to roll that out. And so those that are truly of the Lord will join in this conquering. Dear brothers and sisters, does that mean you? Are you supposed to take part in this conquering of the kingdom of darkness? There's an easy answer. It's yes. To be a Christian is to take part in that conquering. As Jesus speaks to the seven churches of Revelation through the Apostle John, He gives them hope in the midst of the battle they face in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, remember, was desiring to destroy Christendom, much like the kingdom of darkness today exists within the world. And so notice these verses here. I want you to see the thing that sticks out, that combines these verses and runs as a theme through them. Notice, what he says to those that are the true believers. This is Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the second church, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the third church, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the next church, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. 
To the next church, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To the next church, he says, the one who conquers. Do you get my drift? To the next church, he says, to the one who conquers. Do you get my drift? Do you think it's important that we as Christians take part in the conquering of the kingdom of darkness on behalf of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Can I get an amen? You see, being a Christian is being a conqueror. We are more than conquerors, Paul said to the Romans. We're not just wimpy, halfway conquerors that barely make it in by the skinning of our teeth. We are conquerors, more than conquerors. And yes, we are not to go in and destroy the Canaanites. That's not our calling. But our calling is to destroy the works of evil, destroy the kingdom of darkness in our own lives and in the world that surrounds us, to break apart injustice in the name of Jesus Christ. The theme, obviously, here in Revelation, you guys probably picked it up by the second one and I beat it into the ground, is that to the one who conquers, in other words, the one who conquers with Jesus, the one who stays allegiant to Jesus in the midst of the battle against all the other things in this world that try to vie for your allegiance and your attention. And if we do that, if we conquer, if we fight with that mentality, Jesus will give us victory. And so how is it that we participate in this victory? Well, it says that we do it by our faith. This is what 1 John 5.4 says. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. It's our faith. Now that word faith, it's way more complex than you think it is. We like to make things simple in our fast food, have it my way society. And so faith has very quickly become only the idea of if you believe in it and you can't see it, then you're good. So I have faith in Jesus. He's not here. I'm good. I'm a Christian. But see, the reality is that's a small piece of the word faith. Faith means a trust and a belief even when we can't understand what God is doing. But it also means an allegiance and a covenant faithfulness to Jesus Christ above all other relationships or things which draw our attention. Those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ have been given the promise of victory by God, and Jesus will reign in victory over the world He created. And those of us who are allegiant to Him will reign with Him. That's the assurance of the Word of God. And this is good news, is it not? It's good news that we will reign in victory with our King, with our Lord and our Savior. There's no part of this world that currently holds us down or fights against us or defeats us that will not be destroyed by the goodness and graciousness and justice of our God. Amen? We can rest assured in that. We can know that the things that break our heart that we see in the news, the things that break our heart in our own families or that surround us, or even maybe the things within us that break our hearts, these will one day be destroyed and fully subdued by our Lord. That same God that went before Israel as a consuming fire, He is within us and among us and in front of us and behind us, fighting on our behalf. But Moses is quick to warn the people that having this knowledge and this assurance can easily get twisted by our own narcissistic pride. So he continues in Deuteronomy 9.4, and he's going to retell the story of the golden calf in order to make his point. We're going to read just a portion of that this morning, and the next week we'll continue on in that story. But let's look at verse 4 there. Moses says to the people, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. 
Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Motivational, right? That's just what you want to hear from your coach before the big game. Stubborn, stiff-necked players, right? Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Now notice, the ones he's speaking to are mostly the children of the people who participated in the golden calf. He's saying this as a people group, not just to the individual. He says, even at Horeb, Mount Sinai, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord, Yahweh, said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. Now, the good news of this story is that Moses then acts as an intercessor and intercedes on behalf of the people. And we'll talk about that a ton next week. But here what we see is a very simple fact. You can write this second main point down. Victory can only originate from God's virtue, not our own. Victory can only originate from God's virtue, not our own. I was talking with someone last year about the Romans Road. You guys haven't heard of this before. This is the evangelism method of taking bits of the book of Romans and stringing them together to tell the gospel. Now, I know God uses the Romans road. I've used it myself. It's a good thing. So don't hear me wrong that I'm bashing on it. I know that there's nothing innately wrong with it. But as you've heard me say before, what I told this person was, I have a hard time taking Scripture out of context, putting it together, and trying to tell a story with it. I want to read things in context. So I would rather sit down with that person, and I would rather go through the whole book of Romans so that they could see those things in context. Well, this person responded with a good question. They said, well, how on earth are you supposed to share the gospel with them in a short statement? What text would you use? And I responded with giving them a list of scriptures in context that you didn't need to dissect. But one of the texts I would honestly take them to, a person who needs to know the gospel, is right here. I would take them to Deuteronomy chapter 9 and read verses 4 through 6, or even maybe all of chapter 9. Because let's break down what this is saying. Let's break it down very simply. We are, humanity is, a stiff-necked people. 
We all want to go our own way and disregard our Master. We want to disregard the very Maker that created us. Now, I've been a Christian a long time, but as I've said to you before, I find constantly that I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Is that you guys at all? Are you guys sinners like me? Okay, let's do it this way. Wives, do your husbands act this way sometimes? Yes. Husbands, do your wives ask or act this way sometimes? Yeah, all the smart husbands kept their mouth shut on that one. Yeah. Somebody's going to be sleeping on the couch tonight. Now, the reality is, is that all of us do this. We know this in our spouses. We know this in our kids. We know this in our roommates. We know this in our friends. We know this in our parents, right? The reality is, is all of us are stiff-necked. The idea of stiff-necked, the word in the Hebrew, is a donkey who's been told to move and he stiffens his neck, right? I am not going to go that way. And that's the reality of how I am. The Lord places something on my heart because I've read the word. I know his law and the spirit within me says, Hans, go this way. And I go, I will not. I stiffen my neck. We're so stiff-necked that as soon as he declares his love for us, we respond with rebellion. And we quickly pervert his character and begin forcing him into our own limited view of who he is. And Moses is using the story of the golden calf to show the faithlessness of mankind. He's quick to point out in verse 9 that God wanted to be intimately close. Deuteronomy gives us a little bit of insight that Exodus doesn't, that God spoke out of the mountain to the people and said, I want to be individually connected to you. And they all went, oh, this is too much. Moses, go for us. And God said, as we read in Deuteronomy earlier, that God said, well, that's actually a pretty good idea. Moses, why don't you come up here? And it's not because God didn't want a personal relationship with the people, but he could see their stiff-neckedness. He could see that they were scared to death, not just because God is sovereign, but because they knew their own brokenness and sin. And yet, in despite of the faithlessness of man, the faithfulness of God comes out in a massive way. The faithfulness of God freed the people from the oppression they were under. The faithfulness of God brought them through the wilderness. The faithfulness of God gave them covenant promises so that they would know that they were God's special people. And yet, in the midst of that, they decided to mischaracterize God and break the covenant agreement that they had made with Him. Here they were, not yet 40 days removed from hearing God's voice from the mountain, giving them the basis of their covenant relationship, the Ten Commandments. And what was the first two? Right off the bat, you guys remember them. We just read through them a little bit ago. Here are the first two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, guys, remember I love you. I've brought you out of oppression. Remember who I am. I'm a God that wants to serve you and care for you. And yet the response uh, was, we're not going to let you do that. Because the next two commandments were, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I don't know about you guys, but I have a terrible memory, and sometimes I don't remember things 40 days later. But I think if there was a smoking mountain with lightning and fire, and the voice of God came out and said, Hans, do not ever eat a bologna sandwich again. I would probably stay away from bologna. You know what I'm saying? And yet, not even 40 days later, here it is. Don't make a golden image. Hey, you know what's a great idea, guys? We should make a golden image. And I'm quick to criticize them, but the reality is, is I do the same thing in my heart and mind. They thought in their own mind that they were honoring the Lord. 
How often do we do things by mischaracterizing God and then saying, well, this is how I should serve him. This is how he is. And he never, ever told us to do that. That's why reading your Bible is so important. If you're coming up with the idea of what God wants in terms of obedience in your own mind, you're going to mischaracterize God. You have to stick to the Word of God in order to understand what obedience looks like. Now, either they were picturing Yahweh as a golden cow, which was actually an image found in both Egyptian mythology or in Canaanite mythology of Baal, who was half cow, half half bull, half man. Or they were doing what the Canaanites often did themselves, which is they would build the golden calf as an altar and they would say that their God would ride above that, that calf. Either way, they're breaking exactly what God commanded them to do. What a picture of sin. What a picture of our sin. That Jesus gives Himself to us in covenant faithfulness and says, drink this cup, eat this bread, what we'll do later in communion. And we consume and then we go off about our way throughout the week, not even thinking of God the rest of our week before we come back here. And in many cases, we step into sin and do our own thing, often egregiously breaking our covenant with Christ. We are a stiff-necked people. Am I right? Yet, in spite of this truth, God provided victory to these stiff-necked people. And yet, in spite of our faithlessness, God provided victory for us over our enemies, sin and death and hell and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus ministered in His time on this earth in a way that proclaimed the coming kingdom of peace and justice. That God is for the oppressed, for the hurting, for the sick. And then He went to the cross. Went to the cross to do the ultimate damage and defeat to the kingdom of darkness. He gave the atoning sacrifice that paid the price for the sins that you and I have done in the midst of our stiff nakedness. And all of mankind have committed in rebellion against Him. Yet He, a loving and faithful Creator God, sent His Son because He loved us. And His Son, in His death, He took not only our place in the midst of the wrath of God, but He also satisfied the debt of our sin so that we could be in victorious reconciliation with the Father. This is the message of the Gospel. That we, while stiff-necked, were given a Savior to pay the price for our sin. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The key to the good news is that it was not because of our righteousness, not because of our virtue, but because of the Lord's. It was not because of our righteousness that Christ died, but because of God's own righteousness in spite of our sinfulness. And this word righteousness is not just a moral righteousness, but more so a faithfulness. In the JPS Torah commentary on Deuteronomy, Jeffrey Tige says this, he says this term, Righteousness, or you guys know it in Hebrew, I've said it before, righteousness is tzedakah. Everybody say tzedakah. This term, tzedakah, may refer specifically to loyalty or devotion, not to virtues in general. This meaning is attested in Hebrew and other Semitic languages and is suggested by the fact that the rest of the chapter is a demonstration of Israel's lack of loyalty 
in the midst of God's loyalty, His righteousness. We were saved and given, author, uh, given victory over sin and death, not by our faithfulness to God, not because of our moral superiority, but because of His, because of Jesus' faithfulness to His people. This is the gospel truth. You want to give somebody the gospel? Turn them to Deuteronomy 9. We are a stiff-necked people, but in spite of our rebellion, God in His faithfulness sent His Son to die in our place as our atoning sacrifice so that we might be reconciled to the Father God in covenant relationship, loyalty, and victory. This is the gospel you come here to celebrate today. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've not accepted His atoning sacrifice in your place so that you might start to walk in victory, I would suggest that today is the day of your salvation. If you don't know Him, please come talk with me. Come talk with Patrick or one of the other leaders. We'll be in the back. And we would love to help you walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ and know what it is to give your life over to Jesus. Well, Moses adds one more item for the Israelites to understand. It's because of God's righteousness, not their own, but also that Israel was given victory over the Canaanites, not because of their lack of wickedness, but because the time had come for the wickedness of the Canaanites to be judged. Now, this is another very important item to remember when we're discussing God's judgment of the nations with people who take issue with this. In essence, Moses is letting the Israelites know that all people are wicked, including themselves and including us, and God is long-suffering, but He will eventually punish wrongdoing. He will not let sin go undealt with. And so, the biblical narrative shows us that while God was going to use Israel as a tool of judgment for Canaan, just under a thousand years later, He used Assyria and Babylon as a tool to judge Israel. This is an important thing for us to understand that we are wicked. We need to be saved by Jesus, yes, but then we need to start walking in obedience because if we do not, dear brothers and sisters, if we allow the kingdom of darkness to once again rule and reign in our lives, the Lord will eventually bring us to judgment. So we can't be a people that sit on our laurels and say, well, I prayed a prayer back at you know outdoor camp, that, that Christian camp I went to when I was six, and so I'm good now. Every day of your walk, as a Christian, should be further and further into victory and obedience. Because if not, the Lord is gracious to be long-suffering, but He's also just and holy to bring judgment. And as Americans, perhaps we should humble ourselves in our nationalism and realize that we desire to be proud of this nation and that we desire to obey Jesus Christ and that we are founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but that lately, and by lately I mean for the last few generations, our society has started to drift. And we need to be praying for our leaders regardless of their party. We need to be praying for our nation because we might too be a nation that history looks back on and says, man, it was great that the United States was used as a tool to bring God's judgment. Uh, but they didn't turn it around. And so then someone else judged them. God granted victory to Israel not because of their virtue, but because of His. Not because of their lack of wickedness, but he used them as a chosen tool to bring judgment upon the fullness of the wickedness of the Canaanites. And so we can see that the main point of Moses' exhortation in our text today is don't confuse victory and virtue. Don't think because you're victorious over your enemies that it's your virtue. Don't believe that your salvation from the penalty of sin and your victory over it ever originates with your righteousness. It's all God's. The origination of our victory is all 
God's. Amen? Now, if we're not careful, we can take this idea and we can swing the pendulum further away and become rigid in a different view, in a different way. And that's why I love Deuteronomy 9. is because we can say, no, we don't want to think it's our virtue, so let's stay away from that because that's gospel truth. It is all God. He's the one that's accomplished the victory. Amen? That's true. And so let's go over here. And this is what I see in evangelicalism over the last 50 years is that we've taken that and said we don't want to be people who earn our own righteousness or earn our salvation by works. And so we're going to go over this way to the other side. And it creates a people who almost take pride in being lackadaisical in their salvation, in their obedience. And we don't want that either. And so what's cool about Deuteronomy 9 And why I love this text for us today is that it won't allow us to sit back in our complacency and wait for the Lord to conquer while we sit on our laurels. The third part of today is this. God partners with His people to bring about the fullness of victory. God partners with His people to bring about the fullness of victory. We want to absolutely stay away from this idea of earning our salvation through our works. That is absolutely complete and utter lie. But we also want to stay away from the other side that says God requires nothing of us in response. Which again, quite honestly, I see more and more as a pastor today than I do the other side. Because we are now living in a pagan nation. And so what I see is pagans, they don't care about earning their works anymore, earning their righteousness. But what happens is, is if they're given a false notion of salvation, then they get this idea that, well, I prayed a prayer once, I'm good to go. Let's just keep doing what I used to do. And that's just as false. So let's take a look back at Deuteronomy 9 and look at verse 3 and see what I mean. Verse 3, it says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. Would you agree with me that if God did not do this, they would be destroyed? Would you agree with me that the origination of their victory is all God? Yes, absolutely. But notice what he says next. He doesn't say, so you guys hang out here over on the east side, I'll go take care of it. Notice what he says. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. But I'm confused. Which one is it? Is it God or is it man? Well, where's the confusion? It's both. Where's the confusion? It's both. The problem is, is that because we get stuck in this idea of just salvation, of making Christianity about how I get to heaven, well, that's easy, guys. That's all Jesus. (laughs) You do not get to heaven on your own. Here's the problem. You've got a life after you pray that prayer. And so what do you do with the rest of that? Is that all Jesus or is that all you? Well, it's not either. It's both. It's both. You see, the gospel speaks the same truth to us. Without the consuming fire of God's wrath being dealt with on the cross of Calvary, through the atoning work of His Son Jesus, there would be no victory. We would all be consumed. But likewise, without God fighting on behalf of the people here, they would be destroyed. And we see this throughout Scripture. But God shows His power through His people so that they are acting on His behalf. God would destroy them and subdue them, but the Israelites would be the ones to drive them out. It would be a partnership. What you see throughout Deuteronomy is God wanting to work through incarnate means. God shows His power through His people acting on His behalf. 
It's an amazing thing that brings the miracle of God's power and sovereignty to the world. Often when I hear people discuss the gospel, they go to one of two extremes, those two pitfalls I discussed earlier. Let me give you one example. Often when I talk to people about defeating sin in their lives, maybe coming out of addiction or they're in the midst of recovery, I'll hear people say a lot of times, isn't it great that God has given me victory over my addiction? And I will automatically say, yes, brother or sister, praise God. But if you just rely on that and you don't actually take any steps forward, guess what's going to happen? That person, without fail, will end up falling on their face. They absolutely will. On the other side of the spectrum, there are those who are simply working harder, trying harder to white-knuckle their way to holiness. And you remind them about Jesus and they go, oh, right, i got to focus on Jesus. That's right. Working so hard that they're actually forgetting the Lord's Spirit and power in the midst of their fight. And this is the person who eventually will ask, does God not love me? Why doesn't God conquer for me? You see, both of these false notions leave us in this place where we mischaracterize God and wait for Him to bring victory or make it all about Him doing the work and none of it being our own. To have only one or the other will leave us in a place where we do not understand the fullness of God's good news. And I guarantee you, you won't experience the victory He intends. Take a look at what follows those verses in 1 Corinthians that we read earlier, right? Oh, oh death, where is your sting, right? The Lord's given us victory, but look at what it says. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of that, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, I do not want to step up and say I'm speaking on behalf of Jesus, but I have an inkling that God would step into a lot of Christians' lives and a lot of churches, and he would go, where's the labor? What are you guys doing? You guys are really happy that you're going to heaven when you die, but where's the labor? What are you abounding in? Where's the work? Well, no, 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 it's not work. We're not saved by works. Amen, but look at what it says. Hans didn't make this up. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What is incredibly important is that we get the order straight, guys. Just as with the Israelites, they could not go into Canaan on their own power. They needed the source of the Lord fighting on their behalf. But then from that place and through that power, they were to act. One of my favorite places in the New Testament that Jesus speaks to this same topic is in the parable of the talents. Why don't you guys turn there with me? Turn to Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Now, many of you are familiar with this because I love this parable. I use it in counseling a lot. I use it to discuss what it is to be a disciple a lot. And I use it because of the reason I'm using it today. It gives us an understanding of the proper order of understanding God's power and then the requirement for us to partner with Him. Give me an amen when you're there, 25.14. All right, it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Okay? If you're not big on symbolism, this is Jesus is going away. He's going to entrust his kingdom to who? Us, his, his followers, right? 
And it's his property because he rules over the nation. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. And people say, what are these talents? Are they talents as we know them in English? Are they giftings? Is it money? Is it salvation? What is it? I've heard it taught all across the board. Guys, the reality is it's somewhat ambiguous because what do you use money for? You use it to do what the master says. Whatever it is. Okay, so to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, really quickly, whose money was the original talent? The master's for every single servant. It was the master's. Did they suddenly come up with it on their own? Was it their righteousness that earned it? Their virtue? Absolutely not. They went from zero to some talents because God gave it to them out of grace. Because the master gave it to them out of grace. But then, here's the next question. When they earned additional talents, whose work was that? Theirs. It was their talents added to the talents given to them. Now notice, they were already in the master's good relationship. Earning these talents didn't get them into relationship. Just like working on the Lord's behalf doesn't get us into reconciled relationship with the Lord. We're already there. But if we just sit around and go, boy, I'm so glad he gave me salvation. I'm so glad he gave me this this life to live within his kingdom. Well, then we're the last servant. The one that digs in the ground and hides their master's money. Now let's see what happens there. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. That's a symbol of the fact that Jesus will return and say, hey, brother or sister, how did it go? And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That sounds pretty good, right? And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, did you deliver to me two talents? Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Now, you got John Piper, right? He's the five-talent guy. Right? He's going to show up in heaven and, and the Lord's going to be like, I gave you a lot. All right, Johnny boy, how'd you do? And he's going to say, I think, look at, look at the ministry. And the Lord's going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Now, somewhere after that is you and me, right? Okay? And, and I'm going to show up at heaven. And I'm going to be like, okay, I got my two and a half, Lord. I got my, you know, 1.5. Here we go. And he's going to say, how to go, Hans? And I hope by my life, he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean, you know, I'm walking around in complete and utter holiness. It means that I attempted with my life to try and bring some gain to the kingdom. Not for salvation, but because of God's gracious salvation. Now it says, he also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Does that sound like the master we serve? Mm -mm. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. What's that called when you reap where you did not sow? It's called stealing. Who's the one that came to lie, kill, steal, and destroy? Uh Uh-huh. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Notice the question mark. In other words, you had this perception of me and yet you did nothing? 
then you ought to have invested the money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. In other words, if you had this perception of me, this is what you should have done. So instead, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just let that sit for a minute. Dear brothers and sisters, when Christ died in our place, we were poor and without any hope. And in our place, He died as a sinless sacrifice so that He could give us His perfect righteousness and obedience towards the Father. And the good news of the Gospel is that when the Father sees us, He sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is what's called, it's a very important term, it's called imputed righteousness. Everybody say imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is what God gave us by His grace through His Son where He sees the Son, not me. Praise God. Amen? This is all God. It's His alone. We can't earn it. We can't work on it. It's what Jesus gave us. But guys, the good news of the Gospel is that He also sent His Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts and in so doing, He gave to us, He imparted to us His heart to obey the Father and to practice righteousness and justice. And guys, this is called imparted righteousness. Everybody say imparted righteousness. This originates with Him. It can't be possible without Him, but it becomes ours. And from it, we gain interest. We bring to the Lord the work that He asks of us. Now, to be clear, because many, many pastors, they say it rightly. They say, there is nothing you can do to add to the work of Jesus Christ. And I would say a hearty amen when it comes to redemption, salvation, the cross. Nothing we can add. But guys, every one of you is here, I would hope, because you believe in Jesus Christ. You're the gathering of His church. And so there's a peace that is now required of us. And that is to walk in His imparted righteousness. You see, for us to understand victory is also to understand virtue, His and ours. We are dead without His virtue. We are doomed to be destroyed without His power and glory. But then the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gave us that. He defeated that. He gave us His virtue and He defeated our enemy with His death on the cross and reconciled us to the Father by His righteousness alone. And now, dear brothers and sisters, that power does not cease. He calls us through that power and because of that sacrifice to give our lives to the vision of conquering the kingdom of darkness through the carrying out of our faith. And we do so by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection in both our hearts and minds and lives and by our very words. We proclaim it in everything we do. This is why the biggest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, Oh, you're everything. And man, I had a really great Christian mentor one time come up to me and say, hey, huh, you gave your life to the Lord, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which part of it did you give? That sank deep for me. Which part of it did I give? I give two hours on Sunday. I serve in the nursery. I mean, that is, that's sainthood. Amen, it is. But the reality is, is that he asked us to give us his, all of our lives. Moses' point to the Israelites was don't swing the pendulum so far that you dismiss God's virtue and make it your own. 
Because this would create a person who thinks they can enter into salvation on their own. And this, dear flock, is impossible. But at the same time, this text today in Deuteronomy 9 tells us that in the midst of his command to be one with him, he also commands us to go out and conquer, to be all that Christ commands us to be, to be the people that take his kingdom to the ends of the earth in our neighborhoods, our places of work, our homes, our schools. And it's true that it is absolutely God's victory and virtue that bring us salvation and sanctification, but in his grace, God commands our partnership to bring about his victory. Well, I might have you completely all motivated. You might think, man, that's awesome, Hans. Let's go conquer. And we're going to get outside these doors right here and you're going to go, wait, what's that mean for me? I go to a cubicle every week. I play with my kids. I come to church on Sunday. How on earth do I conquer? Well, you see, that's the application piece. And this morning, I want to ask you to take a look at your life and see which side of that pendulum you swing to. If you are a person that errs on the side of complacency and you are just waiting for God to bring victory over sin, and maybe you're a person that's just waiting for God to bring that thirst to read the Word. Yeah, when God gives me that thirst, then I'll jump into the Word. Or maybe you're a person who's thinking, man, when God overcomes my introversion, then I will join that community group and get into that fellowship. Well, guys, that's probably not going to happen. There's a certain point at which you partner with the Lord. You know He's saved you. He says, I am the consuming fire that has saved you. Now, go conquer. And the first step for many of you in this room is to simply say, I will. I will step out in those ways that I don't necessarily feel like doing. Maybe you're a person who knows that you are in unrepentant sin against the God that created you and saved you. And He's saying to you today, today is the day where you make the step to conquer the kingdom of darkness by simply saying, I will take the next step. I can't tell you how many times I run into guys, for example, who say, man, I have a problem with lust. I look at junk on my phone and I say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Boy, I really hope the Lord helps me on this one. I got a solution for you. I got a sledgehammer. Hand me your phone. I'll fix this real quick. Oh, but you know, I, I need my internet capability. I, you know, I mean, it's just so important for me. Better for a man to cut off his iPhone and enter into eternity maimed than to lose his soul. You see, we need to take the next step. We need to conquer. And so if you're a person that sits in a little bit of complacency, I would say today, today is the day your complacency stops. Look at your life and say, what is it for me to take the next step of conquering? The Lord is giving me salvation and a regenerate heart. What do I need to do? Now, you could also be a person that's prone to spiritual arrogance and you think your work and man, you are just your hot stuff in the kingdom of God. Today, I would say to you, you need to stop your work and you need to get on your knees and remember the cross of Jesus Christ because your work will burn you out. Trust me, I know. And it will get you to a place where you never thought you'd be because you're doing it on your own power. Do not think that you've entered this land because of your righteousness. It's not you, it's Him. And today is the day where you go to the table of communion and you remember the cross. And you don't say, Lord, thank you for me. Thank you for my work and all that I'm doing. You say, thank you for what you've done. And thank you that it empowers me in conquering. And lastly, there are many of you in this room that are people who are rightly balanced. 
You know the two. You've heard the spiel from me. You've hung out with me for seven years and you are going, I know this. And there have been steps I've taken and I have a long way to go, but I'm moving. And I would say to you today, I want you to be encouraged in that path. I look out on this room and I see so many people who've made so many changes in their life or who are stepping forward for the first time in maybe even 20 years of following Jesus and you are engaging in a way you never have. And I would say to you today, well done, good and faithful servant. To those that last and to those that conquer, he will say, enter into my rest and my joy. And so many of you in this room are on that trajectory right now because of God's gracious invitation. And because you are sticking close to him and conquering in his name. If you're that person, I want to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep going. I would ask you, and I would exhort you to take a look at your life and say, which spot do I fall into? Are there steps I need to take? Do I need to remember that all the righteousness originates with Christ, not me? Or do you simply need to go to the table of communion and commune with your Savior who is pleased with you? Everyone in this room is going to be in one of those spots. 